as Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus, not to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Dear fellow servants of the one true God, the English language is full of expressions that no longer mean anything at all except what we all agree to think of when we use them or hear them. Who knows, for example, what dead ringer meant? How, how did that come to mean exact replica? Dead ringer. Now, I know you all get things in your inbox that explain, okay, this first happened because, and they give some nonsense about the etymology, whatever. But the, the English language, just think of it, is just full of these expressions that mean nothing except what we ascribe to them. Try these on. Bought the farm. Heard it on the grapevine, as neat as a pin. Catch some Z's. Shoot the bull. The cat's pajamas, that ages us, doesn't it? Caught red-handed. Kick the bucket. Pig in a poke. Raining cats and dogs. Vent your spleen. And so on. They don't mean anything, and yet I guess most of us know what all of them mean instantly. Even though the words themselves are not are nonsensical, so unfortunately I'm going to perpetuate the nonsense here by talking about another grouping of words that in itself means nothing. It means even less today, but we're going to use it and try to pump some extra meaning into it. And the phrase that we're going to examine this morning, as you probably noticed from the bulletin or the sermon title, the sky's the limit. The text that will form the basis of our study is found in 2 Peter 3, beginning with verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens, and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, 
be diligent to found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. This is God's word. We highly value this words for in them we are taught the wisdom of God. That's why we remind ourselves each time we need to remind ourselves that these are his words, perfect, holy in every way, that our God would work through the power of these, his words in our hearts this morning, we pray, sanctify us. That is, set us aside for holy purposes only. Sanctify us by your truth, O Lord. Your word is truth. Amen. So that expression, the sky's the limit, really has no meaning today, does it? Other than, again, what we, what we mean by it. Because the sky's the limit for not much of anything now, is it? Is the sky the limit for building? We not only have skyscrapers, there's a couple of guys living in a space station 25 miles above the Earth. So the sky's not the limit for that. Is the sky the limit for... Air travel? No. No, maybe when it first started, but now we not only fly in the sky, we travel above the sky in space. So what in the world does this mean, this, this sky's the limit? It means limitless, as in when it comes to the government spending your money, the sky's the limit. That's what we mean by it. We get that. This expression popped into my head when I read yet another attack on the Christian faith. And when I read it, the first thing I thought of is, you know, what's next? Sky's the limit. And I don't use that expression, so I'm not sure why it popped in my head. But here was the attack. The attack was, or this, this new thing I read, was that Paul was actually not a Christian. He was a secret agent of the Roman government. Stop for a minute and think about what that means. And this was supposedly erudite individuals that have studied the matter carefully, and they had come to the conclusion, based on their research, which I'm sure was an internet search, that they have determined that this was, in fact, the case. Okay. So let me get this straight. Paul suffered shipwreck, beatings, whippings, stonings, untold hardship and deprivation, hunger, cold, two imprisonments, and eventually death, all in his devoted service, not to his Lord and Savior Jesus, but to the beloved Roman government. All this he did because he loved Rome so much. And because of his actions, Dozens of churches devoted to this Christian faith, which Rome was trying to keep tabs on because they feared it. Dozens of churches were created by Paul, remember, was just a spy for Rome. And through his words, thousands came to learn about Jesus and were converted to this seditious way known as Christianity. And through his inspired writings, countless millions have heard and learned about their Savior since then. But still, all was just one big con so that Rome could keep tabs 
on this seditious new Christian faith. Yeah, you bet. That would be roughly akin to saying that we send our three guys overseas because we're worried that the people in Nepal, in Myanmar, in Bangladesh, in the Philippines, in Haiti, and all the other places we go, we're worried that they may one day rise up and conquer the world, so we send our guys over there to keep an eye on. It's just ridiculous, and that's it's like, what's next? What, what isn't? liable to be challenged and lied about and manipulated and demeaned by sinful human being? And the answer is nothing. There is no limit. The sky's the limit in that old meaning of it. There, it it's nothing that's sacred and holy is immune to man's manipulation, to man's perversion, to trying to demean it, tear it down. I remember, for example, as a kid, that the learned of the day based on their study, and this was pre-internet, believe it or not, young people, based on their learned insights and research, they had come to conclude, and they announced it in sonorous tones, that no such person as Jesus of Nazareth ever existed. And we proved this conclusively. Well, guess what? Now those same wise and learned individuals, because scripture is always proved correct, those same individuals later on said, now we have the truth. We've learned that there was a man named Jesus of Nazareth, and we are convinced of And it's like, yeah, I could have saved you a lot of time. There's a book that writes about this. Today, of course, the wise and learned are wiser and more learned. So I read now that among many scholars, their idea is that Mary Magdalene was actually the wife of Jesus. They were married in secret. And that his closest confidant was actually Judas Iscariot. While earth remains, there is no limit to man's attempt to pervert God's word. There is no end to the deception. There is no end to the lies. There is no end to the perversion. Yet in another sense there is, isn't there? And that's where the sky will be the limit. That's where it will end. That's the end that's also now in sight for us. That's what we'd look for because this Jesus promised he will come back on the clouds in the sky with power and great glory and that's when it will end. For this we declare to you, Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica, by a word from the Lord that we who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, in the sky. And so we will always be with the Lord. There's a reason, isn't there, that God, 
the Holy Spirit through Paul ended that section with the words, therefore encourage one another with these words because that's where the end will be of this nonsense. That's where it must stop because on that day, every mouth will be stopped. There will be no more possibility of denial because the proof will be right there in front of them. And at that day, every knee will bow, every tongue confess. In fact, it's hard to even imagine the joy and the comfort of that day when all mouths that speak against Christ will be stopped, when all lie and deception is gone. Everything falls, no more. Those mouths will be stopped. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. On that day, when Jesus comes in the clouds, every mouth will be stopped. And now, in case you're feeling all self-righteous, yours too, mine too, because our hearts are filled with pride. Our hearts are filled with, with falsehood. We don't always speak truth, do we? We're not pure in our thoughts, words, and actions. So our mouths, too, will be stopped. But then, then that new man in us thrills to that event, thrills to that sight, because we know that that will be the end not only to our sin, but to all sin. In fact, I'm, I'm not even sure we can imagine, we can conceptualize the, uh, an existence without anything false. Gone is, is every bit of subtle manipulation and only truth, pure, holy truth remains. We'll never have to wonder or worry about what did, what did he mean by that? Or... Boy, I wonder if that's really true. Everything bad, evil, false, gone. That's the limit. When Jesus returns, he puts a stop to that. On the clouds with power and great glory. That rarefied sky is the limit to man's sin and disobedience. There's where nonsense will finally end and only certain truth remain. Think of that truth. Let that be part of your Advent preparation, which obviously we don't just do during the season of Advent, but that preparation for the coming of Jesus at Christmas or celebration, obviously he's already come, but that commemoration of the event that's part of it. But the other part is, as he kept that first promise, remember he's going to keep that second. He's going to return. 
So when this frustration affects us as it does here in this earth, when man sullies everything and he looks at every doctrine of God's word and perverts it and distorts it and twists it or omits it altogether, when you get frustrated by that, lift up your eyes. Remember, the sky is the limit. When Jesus returns, that will end. And so in our text, we're asked, what kind of people should you be? as you wait for and hasten the coming of the Lord. Have you ever wondered what that means? How do we hasten the coming of the Lord? Now, some think it's, well, we pray, come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly, Jesus. There's an element, I suppose, of truth in that, but we know one thing for certain, that the elect have already been chosen. So are we just waiting for that last baby to be born? No. We're waiting for the last Christian witness to bring the power of God's word into the life of the last elect. Now that might be the waters of baptism for a child. It might be your neighbor. It might be a member of your family. It might be just some acquaintance at work. But we know when the last of the elect are brought to faith, that will be the end. And so Peter says, simply then, hereby, do your job. Do what you were called to do. Because you don't know when that last witness, the power of the word of God works in that heart, that will be the end. And so we just do what we were called to do. Obviously, there's an element of caution here. There's... We tend, to, we tend to focus on things that we can't answer in this and every other text for that matter. When we read in this text, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And then it says we're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth. Understand that God also... God's word is often infinitely greater so than we are, than we can comprehend. So when it talks about a new heaven and a new earth, we really can't fully conceptualize what that is. Now some take that to mean this earth is just going to be kind of burnt off and then recreated, and there's going to be streets of gold that they walk around on, or maybe clouds and harps and Understand that it's going to be infinitely greater than you can imagine. I mean, we can't even grasp what it will be like to exist in some kind of existence without deception, lies, deceit of any kind. An existence where there will be no more apprehension about what's coming next. I mean, you all have things in your lives that, that maybe are bugging you because you need to get them done? How many of you just thought during this service about stuff that you have to do at home? We can't imagine an existence where we just are living in that perfect moment forever. And so God uses terminology that, that we, we sort of grab onto to be carried along and the idea is it's going to be great, greater than we can imagine. New heaven and new earth. 
New in the sense of that, remember the new covenant replaced the old covenant? Infinitely greater, much different. New man. New man when we're brought to faith. We put down the old Adam, beat it into submission, and the new man, infinitely great. Nothing like the old Adam. So also this new heaven, new earth. I don't know what it's going to be like exactly, but wow. Can't wait. Can't wait for Jesus to return. Yes, I can. We can wait. Because he promised to sustain us. He promised to get us through whatever is burdening us in life. And we look at Peter's words again, what, or Paul's words, what kind of people should you be as you wait? Just do what he called you to do. You and I are going to share in that new heaven and that new earth. But only because Jesus Christ opened the door to that existence for us. And he did it not by coming here and showing us how we need to act and live to get there. He did it by doing for us what we could not, would not do for ourselves. That sin that marked this morning, yesterday, last week, your whole life through, my whole life through, all that sin, Jesus never once succumbed. And you want a good, healthy exercise sometime? Go through the Ten Commandments. Review them again. And look for yourself, not only what they forbid, do not steal, do not commit adultery, do not use the Lord's name in vain, do not murder, and so on. Look at also what they say you are supposed to do in our explanation of those commandments. Not only are you not supposed to murder, you're supposed to help your neighbor in every bodily need. You're supposed to put his needs in front of your own. Not only are you not supposed to have extramarital relations with anyone, you are supposed to be chaste and decent in words and actions in every way. Not only are you not supposed to use the Lord's name in vain, that's any part of our God, including any part of his word, you're supposed to use it to pray, praise, and give thanks. It's often in the thou shalt that we recognize our failure. So the exercise is to look at that and how many recognize, how many different ways we failed, and then to sit there and be amazed at the fact that Jesus never once did. How grand is our Savior? Because that was what was required of us. And we fall so far short of being able to do that, but Jesus did it perfectly. Didn't have to, nothing in it for him, only for us. And then he took that perfection and offered it on the cross as payment for our sin. One of the hardest things in life, and if you haven't experienced it, young people, you will, injustice. And I'm guessing you all think you've experienced injustice. My phone shouldn't have been taken away. I didn't deserve a spanking. I, I should have got what I wanted for whatever. You will experience injustice. And you'll experience the indignation that human beings feel when that's just not fair. All right, now imagine you never did anything wrong, ever. And you had to pay for what everyone else did wrong. 
That's what Jesus got. All of my countless sins, all of yours, all of the sins of the world piled on our dear Savior, Jesus. And he said, willing, all this I suffer. Season of Advent is so awesome because it points first to the coming of that God, eternal God, Jesus, into our existence. To, to come into our sin-broken world to do for us what we could not, would not do for ourselves. We're saved now. Heaven's door is open through faith in what he did, not in what we must now do. He's already accomplished our sin payment, our salvation. And he's created a heaven for us that transcends our ability to comprehend. We cannot imagine such a place, but it certainly is thrilling and it ought to be to contemplate to contemplate and look forward also during this season to his second coming. See him in your mind's eye coming on those clouds with power and great glory and ushering you, taking you up together with those who have gone before, raised from the dead, ushering you into his heaven on the day of judgment to a place that is eternal and unimaginably amazing. Think of it. The upside to this, through faith in Jesus, is limitless. That sky is the limit. Amen.